Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 43 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in trying to make the world a better place through business, Raj Sisodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you, as always. And today, we have a special Conscious Capitalist with us. Today, we have the honor of having Tom Gardner, the co-founder and CEO of The Motley Fools. And if you haven't heard of Motley Fool, you should have, because their purpose is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. How about that? They were founded in 1993 by Tom and his brother, David. They help millions of people attain financial freedom through their website, podcasts, books, newspaper columns, radio show, and premium investing services. And as importantly, um, they are deeply involved and have been deeply involved in the conscious capitalism movement almost from the beginning. So, Tom, welcome to our show. Timothy, Raj, great to be here in digital. Hey, super. So maybe begin with a little bit of introducing Motley Fool, where it came from, why did you guys start with that? And we'll go from there. Well, we were taught how to invest by our dad growing up as a game, so it wasn't um, there weren't Greek alphanumerics. It wasn't considered risky. We weren't thinking about fees or Wall Street. None of the major themes of controversy around investing were there for us as kids. It was just look around the world, see what you like, um, and we could buy some shares of that. Um, and that turned into an opportunity there in our early 20s um, to just put out a print newsletter for the fun of it. Uh, of course, we dreamed about it being a full-time job, but when we mailed out that first copy, thinking that just because we were able to get our summer camp mailing lists, uh, my first cousin's wedding list, um, of mostly of people we, did, we didn't know, we met them at the, at the wedding, but didn't really know them very well. We sent out, I don't know, maybe 1,500 copies. And I think we got 36 subscribers. Um, so there was a little bit of pain in that, although it turns out that's not actually a bad yield on a direct marketing mailing. <laughs> we just hadn't thought of it that way. But we thought we would. So we, so we were hoping we would get, have a job. But that wasn't going to happen with 36 subscribers at $50 a year, you know, about, about $2,000 in revenue. Uh, but we, we continued because we were doing it for the fun of it. We loved it. The opportunity to share our investment thinking, um, what we had learned from Peter Lynch, from Warren Buffett, from our dad, from so many other great investors. And there it started in July, uh, June, July of 1993. And I guess I'll just say the next big step for us was to go online. And we we had kind of a splash opportunity and America Online was very early on in their, in their journey at that point. And they asked if they could invest in us. We were like, we don't even have a company. <laughs> what do you mean invest in us? But then we organized, incorporated. Uh, they bought about 20% of our company and we began the journey of trying to make the world smarter, happier and richer. Cool, cool. And did you already have the name by then or did that come later? Um, that came before our first print newsletter was sent out. We were sitting, we were all strategizing different names. And David, who um, 
there are a few things that are true about Dave. One of them is he stays up very late at night. So I think it was probably about two in the morning. He's looking at Bartlett's quotations book, thumbing through, just looking for anything we could name our newsletter. And there he saw um, the Shakespearean quote uh, from As You Like It. Um, And that became the name of our company. I will say that my first reaction to David's idea of calling it the Molly Pool was, nah, I I don't know if I like that one. That's maybe what two brothers do to each other all the way through. Uh, yeah. But thankfully, within 24 hours, I was like, actually, it's re- it's it's a it's a brilliant idea. As David started reading quotes from Erasmus in praise of folly, there's so much literature on fools versus the wise, unconventional versus conventional thinking. And you you want a lot of that when you're investing or you're an entrepreneur. You need to think differently in order to create something new, make something uh, that people hadn't thought possible before. And, and it takes a fool to 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 take that alternate stance. Well, maybe say a little bit about the alternative approach that you take to investment and the, call it common sense of some of the things that you do, which is so uncommon actually on Wall Street. I think probably there may be a few uh, core tenets for anyone who is encountering us for the first time. The first is we're extremely long-term in our orientation. We would much rather hold a bunch of great winners and a bunch of great losers and just hold them all than try and dance around, try and pick the price. There's so much attention given to the short-term headlines. Obviously, we know across the internet, there's going to be some news about anything all the time. So your mind can just um, get overwhelmed um, by the information. But the reality is that when you look over long periods in the market, the, the majority of money is made in the investment markets by people who hold for very long periods of time. This is a key principle that isn't taught in financial media. It isn't taught in schools. It, it isn't even understood by employees at public companies that get share grants, that the most money is made by those who hold for the longest period of time. So we generally never sell within five years. It happens on occasion, but, but our core approach is that, number one. Number two, we, we want to do it ourselves or together, really, at The Motley Fool. And that, that has a sidestep, a, a fair number of fees that are out there. Um, um, you know, Warren Buffett has said that Wall Street is extractive. It's an extractive industry. It, it actually draws value out of the system. It doesn't create value because of the fee structure and the lack of transparency. So I think we're very long-term oriented. We want to do it together, keep our fees low, and just always be saving, always be learning. As you've said, Timothy, smarter, happier, and richer is our mission. And we, when you think about that, you could take any single public company and say, I can learn from this. I can enjoy it working on it with other people. And if it's, if it's potentially a successful company, I can profit from it. You know, I love the, uh, the five-year plus horizon because I could argue, and well, actually people a lot smarter than me have argued, that it's a different skill set when you're looking at a company and sort of saying, if I'm going to buy and hold this for five years, then I'm going to look at that company extraordinarily differently than if I'm thinking about holding this for a day, six months, even a year. And, you know, do you think that's true? Is there a different skill set that you've got that actually builds a competitive advantage for you? I I couldn't agree more. Um, In a way, it is the fool versus the wise. It is the unconventional approach in a world where everyone's looking at stock prices and everyone's reporting on this quarter's earnings. 
when you talk to the executives of the great companies throughout our lifetime, the, the companies we get to enjoy together, the three of us and, and everyone out there, um, the companies right around us innovating. If you were to get a chance to speak to some of the great leaders, it doesn't always have to be the CEO, it could be the chief marketing officer, the CFO. Remember, those, these are teams. These are great teams at the greatest companies. If you had a chance to speak to them, you would hear things like Bill George said, and I know you both know Bill George at Medtronic. When he was brought in as CEO at Medtronic, he met with the Wall Street analysts and he said, my goal is 10 years. That's the target for our performance. Now, if you, you're going to hold us responsible every three months, and I have to report to you and all, I have to cover our company every three months for you. But just know that I'm going to get the best ideas from you if you're thinking 10 years forward, because that's what we're trying to do at Medtronic. And then I think it ended up being a 60x return for shareholders over those 10 years. So you can't really be a conscious capitalist as an investor and have a short-term mindset. It's not possible because the truth is, if you're looking at a stock's performance over a day, a week, a month, or even a year, and remember the tax code says one year is long-term. That's just absurd to me. Um, any of those time periods, if you're if you're gonna invest in, you knew you were gonna sell in six months, how much would you study the culture? How much would you study what the product means to customers? How much would you care about who the leaders were and what their backstory was. No, you'd be just trying to bet on momentum in a stock price. So you don't get the 360 degree view of an organization with a short-term holding period. And that's one of the biggest shifts we all know that, that conscious capitalism is trying to drive. What, what would happen if the default setting of all individual investors was five plus years? How would companies be able to change their focus and their communication? And how might Wall Street and private equity firms and even venture firms have to change their mindset on what they're trying, what, what, how we define success? The shorter term you define success, the more you have superficial organizations and stakeholders. And the longer term you view these organizations through a longer term lens, the more they're deepening and building and growing and caring about their stakeholders. So, David, that does require more due diligence up front, right? Because you can't just pick any company and say we're in it for the long haul. You've actually looked at their values, looked at their purpose, looked at the leadership team, everything, the whole story. And you say, yes, this is a story we are going to invest in and be patient, right? Because if you do that with others, then you could could get burnt. Absolutely true. Um, and this, you're sort of woven that question together. And it is, how do you look at companies differently if you're going to take that time horizon? Is it a different um, set of factors you look at? And um, to, to double down on what you've asked, Raj, or the point you're making, um, you know, if you look back, let's just say 25 years, you know, it's less than 15% of all public companies are responsible for 100% of the gains over a time period like that. You know, so we're talking one in seven companies, the longer your time horizon, it's more like one in 10, one in 15, one in 20. So if you just randomly select 20 companies in the public markets and start looking at them, you know only one of them is really gonna drive any, all the value. All the other ones will just, puts and takes up 50%, down 50%, but one of them will be up mm -hmm. 300 times or 50 times in value or 15 times in value. So yes, we're constantly looking for those companies that we think are the outliers. And there are a different set of factors. I mean, I would say, I'll just take two, trot out two. One of them is who is the, who, who, what is the ownership mentality of this company? If you look at stocks in the public markets trading under $5 a share, penny stocks that people are misled into thinking can create great value in their life when it, eventually they're just, essentially they're just abandoned ships out there. When you go through hundreds of them, as I actually have been recently, you will see that there really is no ownership 
center to a company that's down 98%. Most people have abandoned that company and it's just people taking salaries, board members taking their, their fees. Mm. And there's no center driver, no innovator. There's no one that's saying, I care about people who come to work here every day. I care that my customers are getting something great. It's, 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 uh, it's yeah, it's, there's no, there's no heft, there's no center. Mm. So I really look at that. Who are the decision makers at the company? And again, you can have some companies that are owned by large banks mostly, right? So that's going to be very different than Elon Musk at Tesla. There's a lot of controversy about Elon Musk. Let me say one thing about Musk, which isn't often said. That human being cares deeply about Tesla. He has said, if Tesla goes bankrupt, I should go bankrupt. Um, I mean, so one of that, what's the center? What's the ownership? Who really cares deeply about this? They may make a lot of mistakes out there on Twitter, but do they care deeply about what they're creating? Um, so that, that's the first thing I look for. The second thing is for long-term, you want to find growth. You want to find businesses that can grow their revenue, their gross profits. Uh, there has to be demand and you have to see that demand as expandable. I think of Netflix early on or think of Shopify. You, you, there's got to be a theme that customers are coming to and you can see how they'll expand their spend, tell their friends and others will come. Um, you get those two things, you've got the beginnings of a, a potential long-term winner. Well, you, you use this word, which I love, and I think is incredibly important, which is ownership. And it really raises actually a policy level question in terms of who owns a company. Now you look to the management and said, well, the management should have that sense of ownership. And in our conventional shareholder driven model, quote unquote, the shareholder owns the business in some, some weird sense. And I'm curious, when you look at it from a, almost like a policy point of view, you, you, you made fun of the, oh, you, you, you're, an, you're long-term if you hold it for a year. Um, when do shareholders have the ownership right in the sense that they're not renting the stock for some kind of casino purpose over six months, like you say, momentum builders, versus the shareholders actually have an ownership mentality. They're actually wondering about how is this business going to perform over the long run? Is it going to be a thriving business in five years from now versus, yeah, you know, I'm out in a year or two. Can I get, you know, I'll do some stock buybacks, get my options up and then I'm gone. Hasta luego. <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, it's part, of, part of maturing and making our way through life is when we start to see maybe the way the system was designed is not perfect. Mm. Um, and you know, if you're a seven-year-old, you're kind of probably thinking, most seven-year-olds are probably thinking, well, yeah, school's the way it's supposed to be, home's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, sure, we all have objective objections as seven-year-olds, but, but in general, you, you can go through periods of your life where you're like, well, this is the way things are. There's nothing really new to discover. And we've kind of, it is what it is, and I just have to deal with it. Uh, but you know, the entrepreneurs, um, um, and, and the great thinkers in life ask questions about why is it that way? Was, there, was that set up correctly? I'm not sure that is set up correctly. So I think, Timothy, your point is something that could change. I, I know legally, in order for it to change, <laughs> it would only be new companies that could do it. But if somehow your voting right was tied to how long you held that share, mm. that, starts to, that starts to reward what we're looking for. Remember, the whole market system is designed to create innovation, to create organizations. It's not to create a trading mechanism. There are plenty of trading mechanisms. You can go trade on your sports team. You can go buy a lottery ticket or go down to, you go to fly somewhere and go to a casino. Like let's create a system that doesn't focus on that. And, and that would mean, yes, that just because you gobbled up a bunch of shares 
let's say, as a, as a large financial firm and a public company, let's say, and now you, you're out there, you buy 5%, somebody else has bought 7%, some, you cobble it together and your institutions now own 39% or 43%, but you literally bought in the last six months to do that. And now you're going to start trying to force action in an organization you have no history with, you have no institutional knowledge of. Now, in some cases, that can be good, and it's good to have a catalyst for some scenarios. But I would say, on the whole, if we could eliminate that, I would eliminate that. I would just say, nope, we're going to reward the people who are holding those shares the longest. So if you're an employee and you've held that share, you've worked at that company for 17 years, and you've held your grants all the way through, a lot of, a lot of people take their internal grants and cash them out right away. Uh, but if you've held all the way through, you should have more of a voice, in my opinion. You know more about the business than somebody who just came in and, and, and bought 3% of the stock because they have a hedge fund that, can, that has the capital raised to be able to do that. So I think it's a healthier system if we tie voting power to tenure as a shareholder. So Chances of that happening? I mean, on the one hand, I would say seems pretty hard to pull off. It's a, it's a new, it's a, it, it would require a lot of um, legal work, but it, and it will only start with new companies. And many new companies wouldn't know why they would even do that. You know, many entrepreneurs mm -hmm. sell to venture firms without even thinking what the voting implications are, right? That's that, that, the first big thing we could do is enlighten everyone who's starting a company about voting, about how important that can be and how your venture capitalists could line up together as a voting block against you to force you toward a transaction. So, so I think that's, that kind of starts there, but, but I don't want to be um, um, doubting about the ability to think how many things can change how quickly in, in, in the world when we think. So um, yeah, I would say I would, I would give it a 50% chance of things moving that way over the next 10 years, but it's going to take people saying that it matters to them, like why and articulating that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that was one of the distinctive qualities of the long-term stock exchange that Eric Ries and others have created. In the beginning, it was about differential voting rights based on how long you held your shares. And, and it seems that particular piece has disappeared from their public statements now, even though it's still called long-term stock exchange, but uh, they don't talk about that anymore. So somehow they ran into some kind of roadblock in hmm. those differential voting rights you know, implemented. Well, now I'm gonna have to go back and check in on what they're doing now to, to try and figure out why that is. Cause there, there may be a good, a good argument against it. But, but, but overall, it's, it's a little bit sad when you see a company that's done so many things right and the, and the leaders of the company, it's now tw 27 years into their history and they're down to about 4% ownership and they're kind of having to dance for large institutions that they're, 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 playing, they're playing a game of Frisbee with these companies. So that's, that can be a little disappointing. Uh, what is your view of stock buybacks? Because that's been almost at a uh, crescendo level the last decade or so. I think something like 70, what is it? 60, 70% of profits have gone towards share buybacks and 37% towards dividends. I have, I have some mixed feelings about it. I'll go pro and con. I'll start with the con. So the negative is something like two thirds of all S&P 500 companies spend nothing on R&D. Hmm. So you have, you have just harvest happening there. And if you were to defend them, it's like, I'm making these food products. Everybody knows our brand. We don't really, we're just going to acquire small upstarts in our category. There's no reason to spend a lot on R&D. It's hard to spend on R&D, even if you think, obviously, Microsoft spends a lot on R&D. But imagine being an employee in Microsoft trying to come up with an idea that would be relevant inside of a $2 trillion company. I mean, it's, it's, 
mm-hmm. it's a whole other challenge that that you're that you're facing. So so I'd say um, first is I, I, I like the R and D companies, and I'd like to know the capital's going there long before there's ever any dividend or buyback that's happening. Mm-hmm. So that would that would be point one. Um, then if I start going towards the pros, obviously there is a tax disadvantage to dividends in that you're getting the earnings taxed and then you're getting the dividend taxed. So it is a more tax efficient way to deploy capital towards the overall shrinking of the pie and increasing the value of, of the business per share. Um, but it, it, I mean, in the end, it's not my favorite thing. I'll just say it's, it's not my favorite thing. Um, I think it can be gamed. There obviously are companies that are doing it to play around with the value of the company during options, grants, et cetera. But, but um, I, I would say on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is, that is a beautiful and amazing thing, Raj. Thank heavens there's so many buybacks in one. That is, that is horrible. I'm probably a 4.5. Maybe even a 3.5. Yeah, yeah. That's a shocking number that you gave. Two-thirds of S&P 500 don't spend on R&D. I mean, that's, I think it's, it's broadly an issue. Uh, you know, there used to be a lot of big companies in the U.S. that had these massive research labs, like IBM had Watson Labs and GE and AT&T had Bell Labs. And, and they had huge budgets and they were working on basic research. And all of that seems to be gone now, right? It's it's like every everything that you spend on has to be directly commercially viable, and so I think we're we're losing out on innovation as a result of that too. So uh, it's just an aside. But you mentioned Microsoft. One of the stunning things to observe has been what they have done under Satya Nadella. And as an investor, I mean, if you just look at he's created in his seven years, uh, close to uh, two trillion in incremental market value. Right. And it's, it's just amazing. And I think it's a combination of all the things, right? It's purpose, it's values, it's a great strategy, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you been observing the Satya Nadella story over there? I mean, I'll just, I'll point to um, two things that I, I've never, I've never met him, never interviewed him, never spoken to him, but just as, as a viewer and an observer uh, and, and, a, and a fan and a believer, I'll just, I'll just highlight two things. There are 20 others that I could. One, I think he's an excellent listener. I, I don't feel when I hear him being interviewed that he's trying to draw the air out of the room. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, um, on the continuum of narcissism, <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's very far down here. And I would say secondarily, maybe a first cousin of that listening is kindness. I almost think that if every company right now decided to make kindness a core value, it would be a good move. I mean, it just feels like kindness would make companies better on all sides. Um, whether you're the CEO in a power position or you're the new employee who's upset with something that's happening in the company or wh- wherever you are in your work life, if, if it started with, we want to speak truth with kindness. Um, so, so I do, Asacha to me, one of the, primary ways I review any CEO and the CEO ends up being a lot of the reason that I invest in a public company. Um, and I would say the overall leadership team, but I, the first question I ask is what I want to work for this person. And that's a big question for me because I love my job. I love my company. I can't ever imagine leaving, but would I, would I be willing to leave my company to work for this person? Mm. And, and so very, very few people <laughs> would, would, would get that checkbox for me because it would be a big change for me. And Sasha is definitely, Sachin Adele is definitely one person that I would. I want to shift gears here a little bit and, and maybe go and start to talk about Motley Fool, because one of the things 
um, having had the honor of walking around inside your organization a couple times, is how unique it is. And, and unique not only in your offering and your point of view as a business, but in your values. And so I would love to have you tell us a little bit about how you came to writing your purpose and how you came to write the values that you have. It's very collaborative for us. It, it has been from the beginning. I remember when we were first writing our values up in 1994, I just, an offsite with you know, 15 fools uh, talking about what we care about. We've also gotten a lot of great advice over the years. Remember our company spends every day studying other companies. And at a certain point, the light bulb goes off. Hey, we're, we're trying to figure out which companies we should invest in, but also we could ask them a few questions that would help us solve some of the problems we're facing. And it turns out investors and entrepreneurs love those questions. You're getting deeper into the business. So we can ask, how are you, how are you um, dealing with the remote reality now? How, what is your company doing? And we're gonna learn whether they care, how they're thinking about it. And then we're gonna get a great idea from them and we're gonna test it out in the laboratory of our company. So, so much of the Motley Fool culture is, is a Motley collection of the great ideas from other leaders, entrepreneurs, and companies. And so similarly with our values, it's been a very collaborative process. We've gotten a lot of great outside uh, guidance and thinking on it. And I would highlight that one, uh, one value we were mentioning offline, uh, Timothy, but it is that our internal team came back with the recommendation of a new core value. And it is our Motley value. And I actually, you don't have to call it Motley in your, in your, in your organization, but I think it's a very, very smart thing for every company to add. To add. And that Motley value is what's the personal value that you bring to, to, to your work. I, I think that so much work is done to make sure we get the wording right. And it, it's, it's all, you know, maybe it's succinct enough. So it's converse. We can lingua franca, or maybe it's chiseled on the wall in the lobby of your office, but where's the voice of the individual in that? Um, because once you give the opportunity for one person to say, this is my value, they have to look at the existing values. Why, why name one that we already have? So then everyone's looking at the values and okay, well, this is how I fit in. So all of our 585 plus uh, um, full-time employees have a core personal value that they articulate. Mine is the Aspen Grove root system. Um, it's essentially that Aspen trees are all one root system. We, we see them as many, many different trees, but they're actually all unified at the root level. And that's kind of how I think about our organization and our stakeholders. And that's just me. We have, we've had employees whose core value was, I have a beer with my team every Friday at four. I stop by and ask that person at his desk, like, so that's your core value. Tell me about that. And he said, well, I believe, I believe very, um, very much in separation between the weekday and the weekend. So every Friday at four, we have a beer or sparkling water, whatever beverage you want to bring. And we talk about what we achieved and we let everyone know it's over. The work is over now. Go get your two days. Of, of enjoyment and we'll see you back on Monday. I was like, wow, I shouldn't have been skeptical when I asked you about that core value, that's great. So, so to get that individual expression, I mean, we have 580 plus core values at our company uh, right now uh, because they get added into the, the core values that we have as a business. And I think Tom, part of the emphasis on people and on culture probably came from your upbringing and who you are as, as brothers and as human beings. But also, I think in the beginning, you hired a lot of friends, right? Most of the people who worked in the company were, were friends. Is that how you got started? That, that is true. Uh, we, 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 there, there were certainly like friends of friends. Um, but yeah, there was a core group of about five or six of us that um, had either 
been in school together or um, just had, just had become friends throughout our lives. Um, and it, it is, you know, it's, it's funny to think about those, those early years because I, I, for David and I, we really didn't have any significant career before starting The Motley Pool. David had worked for Louis Rukeyser's newsletter, the, the financial um, 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 publisher and thinker on PBS. And he worked there for about 11 months and decided that wasn't what he wanted to do. I was in graduate school. Um, and we, when, we, when we incorporated, when we were going to get an investment, the only things we really had to look back on, you mentioned, were sort of the living room of our house, you know, and what we learned from our parents and their friends and how much our dad and mom, they played, they were avid bridge player. They, they loved games. Our household was games. We weren't, when we say we were taught by our dad how to invest as kids, I mean, really, we should say we were taught how to play games by our dad and our mom throughout our childhood. That was, that was a core thing happening in our household. Then we would go to like summer camp. I, when I was a 16 year old, I was there at the birth of a co-educational summer camp in Maine. We wrote the camp prayer. We got all the activities. We had 120 campers arrive on the first day. And that was, that was starting a company for me. That was as much. Um, and so the, the values and the approaches of our schools, our summer camps, our friends and our parents is 95% what the Motley I still feel it's, it's expanded so much that I won't link it back to just that one thing. But yeah, that was foundational for us. I guess if we had gone and worked for a large consulting firm for the first five years after college and then started a business, we, we might have had a more um, professional and some of that would have been good. We probably would have had a game plan strategic, you know, but we were kind of winging it out there um, with a bunch of people that we love and uh, we made it. Well, you know, I think one of the other things that, that I want to begin to shine the light on is, is not only that you have a great culture, um, but of the companies that I've seen, you're really living the teal slash agile world in terms of how you actually operate as a business. So a few years ago, I had an opportunity with a large consulting firm to try and come in and start to do a case study on it for all kinds of reasons. They went in a different direction. But I was so impressed with the operating model you had in terms of actually how you run the business, the idea of teams self-forming and people self-curating themselves and their careers. And um, say a little bit about what that journey has been like to this sort of really empowered grassroots kind of organization within a framework that your senior team sets you give a lot of freedom to people to go figure it out. Mm. Um, I'll start by saying we, 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 we should share how much of an outlier we are through good fortune and a lot of sacrifice by a lot of people. And that is we bought all of our investors back. Um, and that kind of began in and around the financial crisis, which made it a lot harder. We weren't expecting that the market would fall 50% when we started buying back our venture capitalists. But by, by taking that action, which took us five or six years of virtually all of our cash flow, we then were sitting there with past and present employees, mostly present employees, owning our entire company. And so then we could sit in a company meeting and say, hey, here we are. <laughs> There's no parental source if you thought that was valuable. In some cases it is, you can get some good advice, but there's more importantly, there's no um, third party objective with a shorter term time horizon. Like let's do this for the next 50 years. And if we were to do it as well as possible, what would we want? How would that play out? And then, of course, you start to lengthen your time horizon. 
you can get more and more people involved. You can be much more experimental. You're not on a frozen rope to a deadline where we better hit those numbers. We're, we're our board, we have an outstanding board. Our board is as much advisory as it is a governing body. It certainly governs us when we need to be governed, but it's mostly an advisor. Hey, I know somebody you should, and they're, and they're not thinking like, let's try and get this action done quickly so our story looks brighter for our IPO. It's, mm -hmm. I genuinely think this person can help. And then that opens up for us the idea of getting an external network of is connecting with is asking as many questions from organizations as possible. And I'll just jump to one story that I think captures where we are right now, something we've learned in the last six months that's been really valuable for us. And that is that we contracted somebody who wasn't a consultant, just he had written a book. His name is Ken Koshenda. He worked at Apple for 15 years as a designer and working in their product teams for 15 years. He is the person who created the keyboard on the iPhone. He wrote a book has a number of videos out on YouTube, just explaining the, the Apple product development process. And so through our teams, we contacted him and just asked him for a half hour phone call. A guy named David Kretzman read the book and said, hey, I just, can we talk for a half hour? And then we loved, he loved that call so much that we just asked him if he'd go on contract with us for eight weeks and teach us everything he knew. He was like, I'd be happy to do that. I'm not a consultant. I don't, what would the con I don't even know, please put the contract together. I'd be happy to do it. So then he comes in and teaches us and Timothy gives us a whole new methodology that combines what you've described with some important framing. And here's how the Apple product development process works in 30 seconds. Starts with a vision. So you need that clarity for where we're going. So you don't want 40 different visions. You've got, you've got to get an integrated view of what we're trying to achieve. Once you have that vision, and it could be a vision for a single product, it could be the whole strategic vision of the company. Let's now, let's say it's a single product. Once you have that vision, you turn it over to an individual who is now charged with creating the first prototype of that vision. And that person is asked to really create that as quickly as possible. A week, maybe two weeks. Could be drawings, could be, could be uh, a video, could be a clickable website, whatever they wanna do. And they could go work on it entirely by themselves. They could get six other people or 180 other people internally. They could call three people outside. They could do whatever they need to do to get that prototype together. Then they bring that prototype back to a center team that gives review and edit. And then you go into an iterative process where that person is the leader. They have creative freedom, but ultimately they are being edited toward an integrated centralized view. And so it combines the freedom that we all want in our work with the structure that your customers want. Your customers don't want so much freedom that they can't make sense of what you have out there. And we've had a little bit of that at, um, at the Motley Fool. So I'm really excited about this new process. And, you know, your culture, as I said, you've got so many cutting edge things that you do. I've all constantly learned from you. What are some of the tools? And you're an early adopter, it feels like, of some of the, uh, the cutting edge tools. And I think it shows up in your employee engagement, I'm sure is through the roof. Uh, your employee turnover is probably very low, right? Is that, is that correct in terms of those numbers? It is correct. And I'll mention a tool that I think many, many conscious organizations could utilize. I've mentioned it in some past talks um, at Conscious Capitalism, and it is called CultureAmp. And it's an Australian company. And it's just a survey tool, but it's a pretty elegant one where we can ask um, you know, a couple dozen questions twice a year of all of our full employees. And their responses are anonymous, and they're giving a rating and a comment. And then we get all that data together, and we can view it in aggregate. And so when we mention our um, engagement scores and our turnover, um, let's just take engagement scores. Our engagement score is about 93%, which is wonderful. Doesn't mean there's 7% of people that are most are neutral 
at this point. And, and a few are, you know, a, a one or 2% are like, come on, we can do better. And we want to mm-hmm. hear all those voices. But when we get just that 93% number, you don't see the niche areas across your organization. And if you knew that the 7% that are somewhere between neutral and negative, we're all collecting in one tenure group or one area of the company, or it was all men or all women, right? If you, once you can see the breakdown of that data, then you can go into those zones and really work on them together. And since it's anonymous and doesn't get reduced down to a group smaller than five, we're not sitting there playing guessing game like, hmm, oh, oh, it's like, hey, thank you for this. Let's go solve these problems. And Lee Burbage and Kara Chambers and a number of people in our people team who are heroes among many heroes at our company, you know, they are passionate about immediately getting the data out to everyone. Like we're not going to polish this, sculpt it, position it, get our communications team ready. Here's the data. Now, the one thing we're doing when we share this data with you right away is to tell you, we're not here to solve this. Mm. It's not the people team. It's mm. not the leadership team. It's all of us. We've got to go figure these things out together. And, and um, I mean, I do have to say, if, if any of this sounds so convincing, I mean, we're 28 years in through a lot of mistakes and a lot of opportunities to learn from other companies. But I do think CultureAmp is a wonderful tool for any company, I'd say with more than 100 employees, it would be table stakes for me if I was suggesting something for them. Well, the other part of your culture is, as I recall, you want this to be people's last jobs. And that's part of your, 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 your thinking is that we want to have you live here forever. We don't want you to go away. So when we hire you, we're thinking just like when we buy a stock, we're thinking long term. When we hire someone, we're thinking long term. Say a little bit about how that plays out in terms of some of the things that you think are special that you do to make that a reality? Well, it's, I've enjoyed um, some of the conversation over the last year that I've seen about whether companies are teams or families. Um, and I first remember um, talking to the CEO of Coach, Lou Frankfurt, who told me, a coach, we're a performance family. Um, we're a family, but you gotta perform. Um, mm. And you know that tension, every organization feels that. Um, what about the person who's an amazing human being, but just isn't right for this company? What are you, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Just allow that to persist forever or there's mm-hmm. some performance accountability as well. So that tension exists inside of every company. And I would say that the Motley Fool falls ever so slightly to the right toward family. Maybe it's because two brothers were in our founding group, you know, um, um, maybe it's way, the way we were raised. I don't know. Maybe it hurts us in some, in mm. some twists and turns in our company's history, but we lean slightly towards family. We do have a lot of performance review, but, but we're pretty transparent, um, in working with any group, any project, any individual where things aren't working in our format, leaning towards family makes sense for us. And it means, um, that we, we've never had any, um, work hours where you're required to be there. Uh, some of the things about our culture ended up um, preparing us for COVID. We haven't, been back, we haven't been back in any office since March of 2020. Our internal plan is, is what we call uh, our Foley plan, first out, last in. We get out as quickly as possible when we don't know what's happening and like, let's study what everyone else is doing. We don't have to come in. And, th- and that doesn't mean we have 100% approval of that internally. There's some, some full employees that are like, can we please go back to our offices now? Mm-hmm. 
but the Delta variant comes through and there's so much unknown, it's a novel virus. A lot of elements of our culture and our family orientation as a company prepared us to be nimble, um, to go remote, to, we have check-ins with everyone who works at our company. Our people team is constantly checking in. And we all know that one of the silver linings in the dark cloud is that we're learning that mental health should not be something that's shuffled to the side or that anyone should be embarrassed to talk about. It would be an amazing thing if we could take one or two more big strides towards saying mental illness and probably eliminate some of the language that feels negative about mental illness and make it mental fitness, mental health, mental wellness. We're all working on this together. Every one of us can have a really tough mental health day, week, month, or year. So Tom, we did feature The Motley Fool in the healing organization as one of the 20 stories in there. And that was for two reasons. One, what we just touched on, which is what it means to the people who work there and their families and you know, that whole sense of community and, and growing together and having fun and all the rest of it, right? It really is, you know, we say healing is reducing suffering and elevating joy. And you guys embody that really uh, more than most companies. But the other side of that was the industry. You're, you're also trying to reform this whole financial, you know, the investing sector where most companies are not really serving their customers' best interests. I think it was either you or uh, David who told me about the book, Where Are the Customers' Yachts? Do you remember that? Yes. So if you can just it's talk about book. that, what that book mm-hmm. refers to and how you're trying to change uh, the whole culture of the financial services uh, industry, which, uh, which, which is not aligned around what is really good for the customers. You've written the healing organization. You've thought about what it means to um, um, cr- create something, yeah, that could that could heal an individual, a team, a company, an industry. And if any industry needs to be healed, there are probably a few other good ones too. But I would say financial services needs to be healed. And it's strange to use that language because most of us, our association with financial services, are um, something I don't want to do. And how can we make it something you actually wanted to do that's kind of woven into your daily life? Something you might even look forward to. Um, and, and it starts the way that our dad started us with, you know, pick, pick something you love. You know, we've heard David uh, tell this in talks. You know, for us, it was he owned shares of a company called Norton and Simon, Norton Simon, and they, they had a product called Squeeze Me. And they were putting in a pocket. It was pretty disgusting, actually. I mean, it tasted good, but it was a mess. Kids all over the place, squeezing, putting out of the... But that was a connection to investing for us. It was like, wow, a dad would say, you know, let's go grab more of those in the supermarket. We own some shares. And we're like, that sounds great. Chocolate pudding. You've heard David tell that story. I wish everyone had that, you know, had that um, guidance and introduction orientation into the financial system, that it can be part of your daily life. It can be fun. You can do it with other people. And in our case, the fees can be transparent. And if you go, think long-term, the chance, there's been no 20-year period in American history where the stock market was down. And most people can invest for 20 years. You know, if you're 63, you should be investing for 20 years. If you're 18, you should be investing for 60 years. So that time horizon puts the probabilities so significantly on our side of making money um, that it's sad the way it's been structured up until now. Well, I, I don't want to jump over the, the issue of your culture in terms of the amount of structure and investment you've put in to support your individuals in growing. 
because I know you have coaches, you have a whole process that you've developed for people to self-curate their own sort of development. And so one, you've got people who are, you know, up for the idea of self-curation and self-development. And two, you've just surrounded them with lots of support to make that possible and effective. And what are a couple of the things that you think you've done differently around supporting your people that, that have had an impact? Um, I'll, I'll name two recent ones. Um, the first is we're working, hopefully they'll get a new client from my mentioning them. We're working with a startup Australian company called Flow of Work. And what they're developing for us is it, it, effectively an AI driven methodology for individuals to manage their own career at the Motley Fool. So you would start out by identifying the things you're passionate about, the work that you're doing, the team that you're on, give, give your profile information. And then through all of the information that we have across all of our pools, you might as a new employee be able to see three or four people who have traversed the path that you hope to travel as, as a pool. And it might not have been easy for you to find them. We're 580 plus people, and now we're spread out in home offices around the world. How can I even, we know that that's one of the big limiting factors of remote cultures right now is how do I get that time with leaders or people who can guide me and mentor me if I'm not seeing them in the office or I'm not walking over to Starbucks and meeting them. So, so this tool aspires to do that for us. And the ultimate aim, we go with the self-driving automobile view. The ultimate aim, yes, is you arrive at the Motley Fool and you are I don't, we don't, we can call it a game or not. Let's put it in the game mentality. You, you are playing the game of your career. And so all the actions, all the inputs you want to put in there are going to help send you back advice on what you should do next. And I'm extremely excited about that because the group that's creating that, they, their hearts are in the right place there. I mean, it could be amazing what we're able to create. So I'm very excited about that. It's called flow of work. The other is just a tool I'll mention Airtable, which, um, just think of it as almost like an Excel spreadsheet for language. And what we have started doing is putting out uh, requests for ideas from everyone at the Motley Fool. And it shows up in an air table. And then all of a sudden I have 600 pages. I have the next two books that I want to read. Uh, most recently, as we are in a, we're an employee-owned company. We're always granting shares to our employees. Our legal team did an incredible job, Lawrence Greenberg. Uh, Martha and other fools did an amazing job in um, adapting an SEC approved private market for our company. So you can get liquidity as an employee at the Motley Fool. That's a very important thing for us. We grant you shares and you can sell back to the company and we have an outside third party that runs the valuation. So when we do grants, we ask for certain things back. Many, many options grants out there are just time-based. They're essentially saying like, wait four years and you get it maybe at a cliff or maybe each year you're getting, but like stay here four years. And I'm not saying we didn't ever do that by the way, but we woke up to the reality. Like, is that the highest calling of a conscious organization? Like we're going to use equity to keep you or can we convince you to become an owner and buy in more through the grants? So in our most recent grant, we asked a few questions um, that you had to answer in order to trigger the short vesting period that you have, I think it's two years. And one of them is why does diversity, inclusion, belonging and succeeding matter to you? We call it Motley. Why does it matter to you that other people are here with different perspectives that you disagree with or that um, you've never encountered before? Um, obviously Motley diversity makes the markets. You need 
opposing views to set prices. Mm. Um, I've always loved the expression: if we both agree, one of us is unnecessary. Now, I don't, I don't like, uh, I don't like a, an environment of a haze of conflict everywhere, but that conflict needs to be resolved. And mm. and so, how do we, as a company, remote, all of us, how do we um, commit to diversity, inclusion, belonging, and succeeding? Why do we commit? And we ask that question. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm through about 330 submissions. And I mean, you're definitely verging on tears with some of them and you're learning so much. What a lovely way of putting it. Let, let me, last question, sort of um, go in a slightly different direction. Um, so with The Motley Fool, you guys have really shown the value of a long-term perspective on investing. You've highlighted some of those principles that underlie how you approach things. And as importantly, now you've got a track record of being able to show this really works. And one of the things I am forever puzzled by is that now we have this data set that we could go to, let's say the private equity industry, for example, and sort of saying, taking this perspective is going to earn you a lot more money than if you do uh, simply show me the numbers kind of approach. So you can do the financial engineering and all that, but, but we have shown that when you have a long-term perspective, you make these kinds of decisions, you make this kind of thing happen inside your company, and it results in tremendous um, returns. So what is it, even though you've got the data set, what is it that's still keeping people in the old world and still keeping them in that trapped mindset of it's all about some short-term financial analysis and some financial engineering that we can do. Well, at the extreme, every Ponzi scheme has a big winner, a big winner, <laughs> a set of winners, and they get headlines. And so everybody hungers to be in that small group that made so much so quickly. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's there at the, at the, at that end of the continuum is outright fraud. But as we travel down towards the other end, it does require some behavioral change on the investor and that would even mean, so the person who's putting money into a private equity fund, um, there, there, there have to be, and there are, I think of like Bessemer Trust, I think mm -hmm. does, a, does a really nice job of having very long-term time horizon because of the way that that was originally structured. You would have to have the origin, the, where the capital comes from say, I'm gonna put this money in with you for this length of time. And then you would have to have the team realize mathematically the best thing we can do, regardless of taxes, but certainly after taxes, the best thing we can do is find the best for the longest period of time. Mm. Um, and then you would probably have to have flexibility in the structure because some families or individuals might have a scenario where they have to pull some money out. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, it, it just requires more creative thought than has been done at this point. I've tweeted this frequently. The single best way to improve your investment returns is to double your average holding period. Mm -hmm. So if you average holding a stock for one year, just make it two, your returns will get better. If it's four, make it eight. If it's 10, make it 20. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's certainly another book or concept in how do we lengthen the time horizon of all stakeholders? And one person I learned that type of thinking from is Herb Kelleher, Southwest Airlines, and how he, you know, Herb would say, most people think, we don't have any unions involved in Southwest Airlines, but Tom, we're the most unionized airline in the world. 
you know, but, but, but we have a long-term orientation in negotiations with all of our stakeholders. Well, you know, Bob Chapman uses a phrase, courageous patience. And I think that is really what this is about. It's not easy. It takes courage to actually have that long horizon and to be able to go through the, uh, the ups and downs. So they, they refer to it in terms of how they deal with people who might be skeptical, haven't yet bought into the culture and the values. And you say, yeah, you'll get it when you get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no great hurry. We know what we're doing and this is going to work out. I wanted to share a fun fact that we didn't get to, Tom, which is that uh, it, it points to your ability to spot value before other people do. So you were an early investor in Hamilton uh, when it was an off-Broadway production. It's only the, probably the uh, most successful Broadway play uh, in history. So tell us how that came about. And are you still investing in, uh, in plays? Well, um, a, a lot of that comes to my people-focused investment approach, which at the Molly Fools called our, our everlasting investment approach. And it generally is, we're going to hold everlastingly and, and we're looking for the people that are, they're going to put their, their heart and soul into this um, and for a long period of time. So a lot of what I um, look for is people um, in, my, in my approach. I'm certainly looking at growth, innovation, but I believe if we're going to be in everlasting, if we're going to be here five years, 10 years, 15 years, we, we want to see the team and we want to see their passion so in the case of Hamilton, it actually originated with my college housemate, Jill Furman, who is a completely brilliant person. Oh, ever since I first met her, she's a brilliant person. She is passionate about creativity, uh, media, entertainment, and, um, and she's definitely a people person. And she was sort of traveling around um, um, Manhattan, just viewing works in progress, essentially, creative projects that were emerging. And she ended up in, I believe, the basement of a church. And there was the performance by Lynn uh, Manuel Miranda and his team doing improv rap. She said, do you have any other, um, do you have any other uh, projects that you're working on? And they were working on a play called In the Heights. And Jill invited me to attend an early showing of it where there were maybe 10 people in the audience and it was still sort of being worked on. And then we went for a walk afterwards in the evening and she was like, I'd love it if you invested, but that wasn't the point. Of it, I just I think it would be fun to do this together, and that that's pretty much the line right there. I think it'd be fun to do this together. Um, whenever we see something that looks pretty awesome, and it would be fun to do this together, that's that's something I I'd like to invest in. And that in the heights, then she carved out a little spot for me to be able to invest in Hamilton as well. So Tom, thank you so much for your time and the wise counsel you've given us today. We really really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Mutual. Thank you both. Well, I and think, Tom, you get our most coveted title, which is your, you're the wise fool of tough love. You know, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a lot to learn. Uh, well, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please go over to Apple or your favorite iTunes or channel for listening on a podcast and give us a rating, give us a score. And don't forget get to hit the subscription button at the bottom of your podcast and thank you to gary jones for our production this week and again thank you tom thank you raj great to see you guys and raj i'll see you next week take care thank you gentlemen